0: Good morning. Now you can hear me. It's good to see you guys this morning. I am just honored and blessed to be able to participate in this series with you guys that we've been uh, going through called The Way, you know, and I've really appreciated how uh, Pastor Brad has been pointing us to this fact that The Way is really a person right? And then he introduced us to the person of Jesus Christ. And we have a a way of thinking that the way of any faith camp is usually like a checklist, right? Some step to doing something to better ourselves or something like that. And it's been really great to just sit and think about how when Jesus says, I am the way, I am the way, saying when you follow this way, you're going to a person, right? And this is what sets us apart as believers in Jesus Christ. Christ. In Christianity, we are so connected to a person that when we see we are following the way, we are following a person. Have you guys been blessed so far with the the series up to this point? Well, today... We're going to continue this series and we're going to be talking about just the easy topic of forgiveness, right? Just, it's super simple, super easy, not hard to wrap our minds around. And you can tell I'm joking, right? Because any of you who've had to actually forgive, you go, this is harder than they say in the books, right? And so this morning, we're going to be talking about the way of forgiveness. But before we get into that, I just want to ask, like, how many parents do we have in the room? How many parents? Raise your hand confidently, right? I'm a parent of three boys. I'm a little biased when it comes to this set because both of my boys are in this show. I love my family, love my boys, right? Um, but how many of you guys, another question, how many of you guys were raised with siblings? How many of you are? Okay. Um, I was raised in a small two bedroom house with five other siblings. Okay. We were like the dysfunctional Brady bunch. If you get that reference and you've seen the Brady bunch, right? And so, uh, if you were raised with siblings, you know that conflicts are inevitable, right? If you are a parent, you know conflicts are inevitable. And if you're like me, you've probably said something like this to your kids that I, I'll i confess, it's not very helpful, but we say it, right? In the heat of a moment or in the heat of a conflict and you've got two kids fighting and one kid's done something wrong and the other one, you're just like, hey, just get over it, right? Have you guys said that or am I the only one, right? Just get over it. Just get over it. And in that moment, we're not really helping our kids to write, get over it. In fact, I have this thing that I say in my house and you've probably said the same thing. And I say it kind of jokingly. And I was talking to my kids about it actually this morning on the way to church. And, and my wife was like, I haven't really heard you say that. My kids are like, uh, he says it all the time, mom. Okay. And it's this like when they're, you know, pouting or something and I go, hey, uh, cry me a river, build me a bridge. And what what is it? get over it, right? Hey, just cry me a river, build me a bridge and get over it. Again, these are not very helpful (laughs) tools that I'm giving you right now for the family, but this is kind of how life goes, right? It was this issue of forgiveness. Sometimes we can present a way that's really just not that helpful. And that's what I want to do for you guys this morning is I want to talk about this way of forgiveness we're gonna see that it runs directly into the person of Jesus Christ. And I think that it's unavoidable. Um, so this morning, you know, I, I was thinking about the fact that every single um every single faith camp, even in the atheist, which requires more faith, we're not gonna get into that camp. Uh it, you can't avoid this issue where we need to forgive because conflict is inevitable. People are going to hurt us, right? There's all sorts of different approaches to this. You know, within Buddhism, it's like meditation and separation from your desire. That's the goal. Good luck with that. But that's the goal, right? You need to separate yourself from your desire. You're angry. That's from these desires and these emotions. And you just need to meditate, look inward, and you need to separate from that. That's the goal. And again, that's just kind of a way of saying, get over it. I'm like, that's not very helpful, right? In Islam, this is an essential virtue that you must have is forgiveness, exercising forgiveness. And again, I'm like, what are the nuts and bolts? How do you do that? I'm the type of person that I have to understand something if I'm gonna do it. And this is where I'm so thankful about what Jesus provides for us. So this morning, we're gonna start off with a section of scripture and it's found in the gospel of Luke okay? It's found in the gospel of Luke. And Jesus is saying in Luke chapter uh, 17, he's saying something kind of similar to what I'm saying. He's saying, look, it is inevitable that pain is going to come in this fallen world we live in. It's inevitable. And he's actually saying, you need to be careful that it doesn't come through you, right? That it doesn't come through you, that hurt and that pain. But guess what? It is inevitable. And he says something very interesting And I want to actually look at the disciples' response to Jesus' statement, and that's kind of where we're going to start off. So in Luke chapter 17, Jesus says this. He's saying in verse three, he says, Pay attention to yourselves, okay? Be careful, because that pain can come right from us to other people that requires the need of forgiveness. But he's saying, I want you to pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, say something to him, right? Um, and if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent. And what does that say? You must forgive him, right? Is Jesus just saying, Hey, get over it. You must forgive him, but I want to focus in on what the disciples say, actually, so if the next verse you can just pull up right here, the apostles said to the Lord, this is interesting. What are they saying in response to Jesus's statement? You must forgive. They say, increase our faith, increase our faith. And that's always struck me when I've read this. I'm like, why are they saying increase our faith, God? God. If that's true, and if we must forgive, then we are going to need you to do something in us that increases our faith because that feels impossible. And to whatever degree you have been hurt in life, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? You know exactly what I'm talking about. And there's two things I see in their response. The first one is forgiveness feels impossible and forgiveness requires faith. Forgiveness requires faith. And so when we say to our kids or when we hear messages that are basically approaching for forgiveness from the standpoint of just get over it, if it's looking to yourself, look, there is faith required in forgiving. And we need some nuts and bolts to what we are believing that is going to help us forgive. Do you guys agree with that? Right? We need something to believe that is going to help us to forgive. I actually like what C.S. Lewis says, He says this, you know, forgiveness is a beautiful idea until you've been told to do it, (laughs) right? Forgiveness is a lovely idea. It's great. Like I said, everybody, you know, nobody can avoid this issue that we have to be able to forgive. It's a beautiful idea until you're told to do it. And then you're like, I just don't. I don't know how I can do this. I don't know how to forgive. I've been wronged. I've been hurt. And I don't know what to do with some of these raw emotions. What do I do with my anger? Because I'm angry that I've been sinned against. And so what do I do with that? What do I do if I'm the one who's offended and I am guilty? What do I do with my guilt? What do I do even on a deeper level? What if, what do I do if, if I'm the one who's, who thinks that I keep inflicting pain on everybody else and I've created this narrative in my mind that, you know, I think I'm just a mistake. I'm the problem. That's shame. What do I do with that shame? Right? And so forgiveness is something that needs to be applied to ourselves with these raw emotions. And, and it's, it's something that needs to be applied to other people. And we need to have this framework of how we forgive. And I really believe that Jesus provides the way. It's our series, The Way. I think Jesus provides the way for us to be able to forgive in concrete ways where we can look at something outside of ourselves, unlike Buddhism, look at something outside of ourselves and go, oh, that's what it looks like to forgive. And gives us a visual aid and something to walk in. So that's what I want to do with you guys this morning. I want to give us a visual aid. And we're actually going to go way back in the Old Testament for a second. And we're going to lay some of the groundwork for what the Jewish mind would think about when they would think of this topic of forgiveness. Okay, so can I get nerdy for on you guys for just a second? Can I do that? Just allow me a little bit of space to just get nerdy for a second when it comes to biblical narratives and stuff like that. I have a point to this, so just bear with me, okay? Um, so there's a way in which Old Testament writers would write, and they write like this in the New Testament too, but you see it all over in the Old Testament. And they would use this form of writing, and it's called a chiasm. And you're like, wow, why do we need to know this word chiasm? Well, I'll tell you why, Okay. Because have you ever read your Bible and like in one chapter or two chapters, it seems like they're just repeating themselves. Have you guys ever read that? And you're like, why are they saying the same thing again and again? Guess what? There's purpose to that. There's a structure in which the the authors would write. And a lot of times what they do is it looked like kind of like this pyramid. Can you pull up this right here? Look, they write like this point A, point B, point C, and however many points they had, and then they would circle back and they'd make the same point again, point B, point A, right? So this is kind of how the biblical authors would write. And so why am I bringing all of this up? Well, people who are way smarter than me have pointed to this structure with the first five books of Moses, it's called the Pentateuch, right? The first five books. And these are some of the most important books in the Hebrew mind. That's what they would look at. And in everything else in the Old Testament, the prophets were always calling the people back to these first five books, right? Where the law was given. And so here's what we see when you stack up those five. And a lot of times what the author was doing was he was driving to a point, okay? So if you ever see a repetition, you go, okay, what was in between that? And then you'll discover what the author actually wanted to tell you. This is the most crucial point I'm trying to make. And you know, it's interesting if you do that with this, uh, the first five books of Moses, where does it point us to? Leviticus. You're like, what? That's the book I fall asleep at when I'm reading my Bible, right? Like when I go through my, my year uh, Bible reading program, this is usually where I check out this is good. You know, reading the beginning, this is even cool. Like I get deliverance of the people, but then I get into Leviticus and it's just like, put me to sleep. I read it right before I go to bed. Right. But the, the like people who are smarter than me have said Leviticus is actually the most important book in the entire old Testament. You're like, okay, I think I should probably read Leviticus now, right? Like, hopefully I'll get you guys on the edge of your seat. And guess what else you can do with the book of Leviticus? Leviticus is actually shaped in this same structure. And Leviticus itself has this chiastic structure that drives you to a center point. And guess what point that takes us to? Leviticus chapter 16 and 17. That's the center of the book. And now you're on the edge of your seat, right? What's in Leviticus 16 and 17? Please tell us, right? I will tell you if we're going to get there right here. That was the nerdy moment. Okay. So now we're moving past that. This is why I'm going to Leviticus chapter 16 is because Leviticus chapter 16 is what contains what is called the day of atonement. And now you're like, oh, that's a pretty important day. For those of you who know your Bibles, that's a pretty important day. This is a central day in the whole entire calendar of Israel. How many of you guys for like New Year's, you watch the, the different celebrations going on around the world? Did you guys do that? I thought it was pretty cool this New Year's. I'm watching the TV. I'm watching Sydney's celebration of new year's. I'm watching, you know, in Thailand, I'm watching China, I'm watching all these celebrations of the new year. You know what the day of atonement was for Israel? The new year. This was their big reset, right? How many of you guys made new year's resolutions this year, (laughs) right? This is their big reset and it's the day of atonement. And so on this day, on this day, There were very specific things that were done. There was a whole sacrificial system that was instituted. This is why it became so important. What I want to do, I just want to focus in on two verses. And it's, again, you're going to be like, why are we reading these verses? But in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 7 through 10, we see this is the point of of all the books of Moses. This is what God is driving Moses to write to. It says this in Leviticus 16, chapter 7. He's describing what Aaron, the high priest, would have to do in this ceremony on the Day of Atonement. He says, he shall take two goats, okay? Two goats, set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron, the high priest, he shall cast lots over the two goats. So basically choosing like which one is going to do which thing he's about to say. He says, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. That's a different sermon for a different time. But he says, and Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. So we've got one goat that's going to be used as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness. And that's the key word right there of that second goat to be sent away. So in the Hebrew mind, they had a very, very visual, uh, image. They had a picture. When it came to forgiveness, this is what they were looking at. They were going, on this day, our new year, our reset, we are looking to our high priest in order to make specific offerings. And these two goats they would take, and it was bloody and it was gross, the day of atonement, right? Like they would take one goat and the sin offering was the goat that would die. And they would offer it for the sins of the people, okay? And then the second goat, and this is what's interesting, is this is part of what I don't think we think about too often, right? But this second goat, the high priest would lay his hands on this goat, and it says, confess the sins of the nation over this goat. And now you are going to send that goat away into the wilderness. Send it away. Right. And so I believe that they're doing is they're painting a very specific picture of what is required when we're talking about forgiveness. He's saying there's penalty. That's goat number one. Right. There has to be a penalty. Right. So when I'm forgiving somebody, there is a penalty that is required for that evil that has been done. We'll circle back to that. Goat number two is for purging. So you've got penalty and you've got purging. You've got consequences that need to be dealt out and you've got a removal of the, the defilement that went on with the people of Israel. So when they're thinking through forgiveness, this is what they're picturing in their minds. Okay, they're thinking of these two goats. And now fast forward to the New Testament and the author of Hebrews he says something very specific about these sacrifices. And the author of the Hebrews is writing to a Hebrew context where he knows they have these images in their mind when he's talking about what he's about to talk about. And I want to point out a couple things from Hebrews in relation to this, okay? We're just kind of laying the groundwork. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it says this, under the law, Almost everything is purified with blood. And then this is what's important. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That is a crucial statement. That is a crucial statement because he is saying when somebody has committed a crime or something that has hurt somebody else, there is a penalty that needs to happen. And how many times in our exercising of forgiveness, we don't need to, we don't know what to do with the anger and we don't know what to do with our pursuit of justice. Right? And he's saying there has to be some kind of penalty. There does have to be a penalty, but without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. All right. Now let's think about every other faith camp. If this is true, how is forgiveness of sin even possible? How is it even possible? He's saying it requires something or somebody to either stand in place of you or you bear the penalty for your sin. It has, there has to be something done with it. Has to be. God does not take sin and sweep it under the rug. He does not. So the first goat, I think is represented here, right here. Okay. There has to be a shedding of blood if there is going to be forgiveness of sin. But he says something else interesting. Hebrews chapter 10. This is all within his same line of thinking, right? Hebrews chapter 10 he says this about the old way of doing things, the old covenant. It's impossible for forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. You guys see the conundrum? He's saying it is absolutely impossible to be forgiven without bloodshed. Something or someone has to take the penalty. And it is impossible for the current system that they knew, the blood of bulls and goats, To take away sin. It's impossible. Do you guys see the need of something to come? Someone to come that is greater than these sacrifices. That is going to take away sin once and for all. Fulfilling both of those pictures. Of both the penalty, death is required. And the purging, removal of filth. Right? And this is what I believe the author of Hebrews and the New Testament writers are talking about when they're talking about the sacrifice of Jesus. This is what he did, right? Hebrews chapter nine, verse 26. I'm sticking within Hebrews because I want you to know this is his line of thinking. This is not just me telling you this. This is his line of thinking. He says, but as it is, he, he's talking about Jesus. He has appeared once, for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He's the greater sacrifice, right? He is who came because the blood of bulls and goats, it was impossible to forgive sin, but yet penalty is still required. And Jesus knows this. He says, I am going to step in. I am going to appear. I am going to sacrifice. And what does that remind you of? Put away. That's that second goat, right? there's a removal of the uncleanness and the filth and everything that has happened to me because of sin. And Jesus is doing something that is going to effectually put that away to put it away. Right? So Jesus' sacrifice is encompassing both of those animals that we're talking about. He's for the Hebrew mind. When they thought of forgiveness, they thought of those two animals when the author of Hebrews is pointing people to Jesus, he's saying, I want you to picture Jesus as fulfilling these two very specific things so that you can know how to forgive. Okay, so Jesus's sacrifice takes both the penalty for sin. That's the things I've done. My guilt requires a penalty. Jesus took that penalty for the things that I have done. But Jesus' sacrifice also encompasses the removal of sin, the putting away of sin. And this is where it gets super interesting to me. Okay. Because the putting away of sin, that just doesn't, that doesn't just affect like my guilt, the things that I've done. What that influences is actually things that have been done to me. Things that have happened to me that have left me feeling angry and not knowing to do about it. And Jesus is saying, I have done something in my sacrifice for you that provides a framework for you to know what to do with your anger and what to do with your shame. What to do with your guilt and what to do with your shame. Those are two separate things, by the way. Right, guilt, and you've probably heard this before, but guilt says, I made a mistake, right? I made a mistake and I'm guilty for that. But shame says, I am a mistake. It's deep down into the core of your being where something that has happened to you has defiled you so much that you really truly believe that you should not even be on this earth. That's what shame is. And this is where the sacrifice of Jesus, I think is so important for not only the forgiveness of others, but you with your own ability to even forgive in a sense yourself, to create a new narrative about the way you see yourself because of the sacrifice of Jesus. He has painted a picture for you so that you can see the father is looking at you different than the way you're looking at yourself. If you have shame, the second goat is saying, I want to put that away. I want to put that away and create a different narrative for you so that you can think about yourself in right terms, the way that God thinks about you, right? And so this is so crucial when we're talking about forgiveness. And you might be going, yeah, but I need some i need some framework on how to do that. And Lord willing, we're going to have a second part to this sermon where we get into more of the practicals, okay, um, at, a, at a later date. But right now I'm going, I just want to bring our eyes back to the sacrifice of Jesus laying the framework for how it is he has forgiven you. Because I think this is the picture that the Bible paints. If we believe that, then there will be ramifications for how we forgive other people, right? And so why is forgiveness um, so important To others, like forgiving other people, like everything I'm hearing right now, I'm going, that's my, that is so crucial with me and God. And you might be sitting here and going, that is good news that Jesus has done something, not only to take my penalty, but also to remove my shame, remove my guilt, remove my sin from me. Right. But then when it comes to other people, this is where I think it gets pretty challenging. And why is it so important? And so for this, I want to just go to Matthew chapter five. Okay, Matthew chapter five, it's a Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus actually, what I believe he does is he raises the bar when it comes to forgiveness. Like I said, at the beginning of the message, we can't escape the need to forgive, right? Every single camp, every single philosophy deals with how do we forgive? Because we have to forgive. But what Jesus does in Matthew chapter five is he raises that bar even higher for the believer in Christ. Okay, so Matthew chapter five, verse 43 through 48 This is what Jesus is saying to people who follow him in the way of forgiveness. Okay, he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Quoting old kind of ways in which they were thinking. He says, but I say to you, this is what my way is. I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain to the just and the unjust. And I just asked the question, who is he pointing us to right here when he's giving us instruction? Where's the visual aid? He's pointing to the father, right? He's saying, look at how the father functions. If you go to the next passage, he continues. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Right? There's this issue of forgiveness that everybody is, is faced with. We, we need to know how to, how to do it. Right. But he says, do not even the Gentiles do the same. And he raises the bar and he says, the way that we love and serve and forgive, should stand out. It should look different. And then this next passage, this is kind of the point. And I want you to hear something very specific. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And now what I don't want you to do is check out, check out and go, well, I'm not perfect, right? This is what I think Jesus is really saying. I want you to be like the father. That's what he's saying. I want you to look at the Father as a visual aid who causes the sun to rise and fall on the good and the evil, on everybody. And he doesn't say, you know what? The evil are evil. And so I'm just going to focus on the good, right? That's a misnomer anyway, because nobody's good, right? But God causes the sun and the rain and everything to come on the just and the unjust. And he's saying, look at the Father. I want you to be as your heavenly Father. This is what Jesus is saying. I want you to forgive as the father would forgive you. I want you to look and know the father so that you have a visual aid for how you are to forgive. Right? And this is what I'm so thankful for. I'm so thankful that in our relationship with God, right? As believers in Christ, right? God doesn't expect you to do something that he either hasn't done first Or hasn't given you the ability to do. And so where God gives a command, he also gives the ability and the motivation and the visual aids for inspiration to do what he's called you to do. And so when the Bible tells us to forgive, he doesn't just say, hey, cry me a river, build me a bridge and get over it. That's not what God says to us. He says, yes, you must forgive. The response of the disciples was accurate. If I'm going to forgive, that's going to require faith. Because it feels impossible. I don't know if I can do it. And I need to believe certain things if I'm going to be able to do it. And faith, what does it do? It drives us to something. And in this case, should drive us to Jesus. To say, I don't know if I can forgive. I've been hurt so badly Yeah, it's easy for you to stand on that stage and tell me that I must forgive, but you don't know what I've been through, right? But the sacrifice of Jesus provides us with a visual aid for how we can forgive. One last passage I want to share with you from Ephesians 4. This is Paul's framework for when he says, I want you to forgive, He's doing the exact same thing that Jesus is doing in Matthew 5, where he says, I want you to be like my father. I want you to love like my father. I want you to treat people like my father would treat them. Forgive as the father would forgive. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, I want you to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. How? How? As God in Christ forgave you. Right? Paul isn't saying, look, just get over it. Just separate yourself from your desire. Just shove your anger under the rug. That's not what he's saying to do. He's saying, I want you to look at Jesus Christ. I want you to look at his sacrifice. I want you to meditate on it. I want you to think about it. I want you to read the Bible. I want you to look at how I've dissected what it is that Jesus has actually done that provides you with a framework so that you can forgive. And he's filling that faith with content. He's filling that faith with something to grab hold of and go, oh, that's what it looks like. That's what it looks like when I'm called to forgive. And I, when I look at the way to forgive, leading me to the person of Jesus, it helps me to know, what do I do with my anger? Well, I would ask you the question, what did the father do with his anger? Is it right to feel angry when you're sinned against? Absolutely. And a lot of us, maybe some of us need to hear that. Like you feel bad just for being angry as a Christian, right? But the Bible says, be angry, but don't sin. Be angry and know what to do with it. The sacrifice of Jesus helps me to understand what to do with it. Be angry and take it to Jesus, the very place where God took his anger for sin. Don't pour it out on people. Did the father pour out his anger for sin on people? No, he poured it out on Jesus. That's, that's crazy. Right? But it helps me go, I, you know what? I am so angry right now because of what happened to me. And instead of pouring that out on somebody, I am just going to give that to God. I am going to vent and say whatever I'm feeling to God. And God says, do it. Get it out. And how many of you guys feel like, I don't know if I can do that to God. Like if I really said what is going on in my mind, God would want nothing to do with me. That is so far from the truth, (laughs) right? If you really said to God, rooted in anger, because you've been sinned against, the things that are going on in your mind, guess what you're doing with that anger? You're only doing the very thing that God the Father did with his anger. And Jesus willfully took it so that he could preserve people. And is that not what forgiveness does? Preserving relationship, right? It's the glue of any community is forgiveness. It helps me to deal with my guilt, right? It helps me to deal with my shame, that second animal being put away. And this is why it requires faith. I have to believe that. I have to uh, apply to myself on a regular basis against the narratives of my brain that I am a mistake. When Jesus says you're not a mistake and I love you and I gave my life for you and I put away your shame on the cross. And I rose from the dead so that you can have new life and a new identity and new power in, in order to forgive people who've done things to you and the things that you've done. Right, when I look at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, it also tells me if I'm going to forgive, I'm probably going to need to suffer. And this is the part we don't like. If I'm going to forgive, something's going to need to die. And that is exactly what Jesus shows us. If he was going to forgive us, he needed to die. If I'm going to forgive others, I am going to have to die to my definitions of justice and vengeance and all of that. I'm going to have to let that die. I'm going to have to cast vengeance into God's hands because it belongs to him alone. And I'm going to have to die to that. And there is a level of suffering in that. Is there not? Right? Every time those emotions pop up, I have to apply the gospel, the work of Jesus afresh in my life. Every single time, and I'm so thankful that God has provided for us in Christ a visual aid so that we can know the way of forgiveness leads to the person of Jesus. And it is very difficult, I think, to forgive without knowing Jesus, without first receiving that forgiveness for yourself, without first experiencing what it's like to be forgiven of your sin. It is very difficult to extend that forgiveness to other people. So in closing, I just want to, to encourage you guys or challenge you guys. And the, the prayer team would come up and um, be available to pray with people. Maybe you're, you're harboring something. Maybe you need to forgive. And you know, right? Like that, that, for, that unforgiveness that you're holding is actually deteriorating your soul. And it leads to bitterness and it defiles people around you because of that that desire for vengeance, right? And God is saying, you know what? You need to look to Jesus. Like the apostles, I need faith. I need faith to be able to forgive. And he's saying, look at me, look at Jesus. Cast that on Jesus. Cast your anger on Jesus. Cast your anxieties on Jesus. Well, what if they're not held to account? Well, guess what? They will be. And that's the gospel of the kingdom. They will be held to account. And maybe you need to just pray with somebody and you need to release that to God. I just want to encourage you guys to do that as we pray. So let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much for your grace and your kindness, God, towards us. You are a God who is slow to anger and you're abounding in steadfast love. Lord, you're forgiving the iniquity of people and yet you also will not let iniquity go. Thank you for marrying those two things in the person of Jesus Christ. You cannot let sin go. And yet you, you found a way in Jesus to resolve that, God, for us, for our benefit, for our blessing so that we can know you, God. And, and that is the most important part, I believe, God, is when we forgive, we are making you known. We are revealing your heart. And Father, you want to know more people. You want them to know you. So I just pray, God, for that ability. Just help us to forgive so that other people can know you, God. So that people can see we are different as followers of Jesus following the way. Lord, help us, empower us, Lord. If there are people in this room right now that have things they need to let go of, God, as every eye is closed in this place, I pray that they would just, even with their mouth, whether it's under their breath or just saying it, just confess that to you, God. Say, say God, I release this to you. I'm releasing this to you. And I wanna choose to forgive the way that you forgave me. Lord, thank you for taking our penalty. Thank you for purging us of sin. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your goodness and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.